So welcome everybody to the Clinical Social Work Journal podcast. I'm Melissa Grady. I'm the editor-in-chief of the journal, and I'm very excited to have with us Christopher Thyberg, who has written an article that's called Examining Racial Differences in Internalizing and Externaling Diagnoses for Children Exposed to Adverse Childhood Experiences. So we're going to break down what exactly that looks like, but I do want to let everybody know that thank you to Springer. This article will be free access to anybody who would like to read the article in depth. You can find the article at theclinicalsocialworkjournal.org or .com. I should probably know the ending for that. Um, But if you Google Clinical Social Work Journal, you will find it. And on that, you will also find our links to all the podcasts for the journal, as well as our social media links, where you can find updates about calls for papers and also other articles that get released that can be accessed by everybody. We will put a link to that in the show notes, but I just wanted to make sure that everybody is aware that if you are listening to a podcast, Springer has made these articles available to everybody so that you can follow up and read more about this topic. So I want to say thank you so much to Christopher um, Thyberg for coming. And if you could just go ahead and um, introduce yourself and share any information with our listeners, that would be good for them to know about who you are and what brought you to this particular topic. Yeah, so um, first, I want to thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I would also like to take just a brief moment to thank uh, my collaborator, Dr. Brianna Lombardi, who uh, partnered with me on this project and was an incredible resource and helped through uh, through this process. Um, but so a little bit about myself. As you mentioned, my name is Christopher Thyberg. I'm a fourth-year doctoral candidate at the University of Pittsburgh School of Social Work. Um, I think it's relevant to know that prior to uh, joining the PhD program at Pitt, that I worked as a uh, mobile therapist. So I was doing clinical work with children and families for several years. Um, And my areas of expertise really focused on trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, family systems therapy, and social-emotional learning. Um, And I'm sure we're going to get into this uh, more in a little bit, but Um, I note this because this was really a formative experience for me and something that has informed a lot of uh, the research uh, that I've been doing in my time during the program. And really specifically, this topic emerged out of patterns and things that I was seeing in clinical practice that I wanted to then see if, uh, you know, sort of broader data would support those anecdotal um, findings that I I had. And so um, I think the, the only other thing that's probably worth mentioning is just a bit about sort of my approach to both practice and research is that I come at things from a feminist and critical perspective. Um, and really sort of in the broadest terms, what that means is that I'm, I'm often really um, curious about where power imbalances and systemic injustices are impacting elements of our society. And so that was something that really framed and shaped parts of how I was viewing this, this research problem. That's great. Thank you. It fits obviously very much with social work. And I think there's been an increase in attention, rightfully so, around issues of social justice and inequity, issues of justice. Um, People use different acronyms of JEDI or 
um, DEI, but we're really trying to look at issues of equity, um, inclusion, justice. So I think your, your study is very timely and obviously really important, which is one of the reasons I wanted to highlight it on the podcast. So if you could just share a little bit, I, I said the title, which is kind of long, um, but all titles are long. So if you could just share a little bit about um, what your study was, give an overview, um, again, a little bit about what prompted you to ask this specific question and what it is that you did and, and ultimately what you found. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll try to keep all that in a, as coherent an answer as I can. But so um, kind of just starting at the beginning, this emerged pretty organically for me. So as I was mentioning in my clinical experience, I, I noticed that for a lot of the different clients that I was working with, there were differences both in how they were diagnosed and also specifically how they were often treated, particularly in places like school or within sort of a, the criminal legal system, um, and that these things often tended to operate based on things like race, gender, class, um, and that so certain things like uh, conduct or oppositional defiant disorders, which are what are known as externalizing diagnoses, things that are more behavioral, um, tended to be punished more severely, tended to be um, viewed more negatively, and that things like more internalizing diagnoses, so things like anxiety, depression, things that are more internal emotional responses that are occurring, um, more often than not, were somewhat more sympathetic in the treatments that they were receiving. And again, as I was saying, I, it, it was an anecdotal thing. I was in the field working, but I noticed that a lot of how children were labeled and treated did tend to sort of vary um, particularly based on, on race. And that was something that really sat, you know, uh, quite wrong with me. You know, I, I was really quite troubled by that. And so coming into the, the program, I had, you know, new access to, to technologies and to data banks and things that I wanted to start to explore this um, phenomenon more closely. And again, as a, a background with trauma-focused work, um, that also led me into ACEs. So ACEs are Adverse Childhood Experiences and these are a, a wide variety of various um, potentially traumatic events or home or community uh, challenges that take place for children um, before the age of 18. Um, and this is something that plays a really large role in uh, both mental health and also sort of you know, physical health. Um, what studies have shown is that exposure to any of the ACEs and especially uh, numerous ACEs can have really detrimental health outcomes. And so all these different things were kind of going around in the background for me. And this kind of brought me into my research question was, if we know that ACEs cause lots of negative you know, health outcomes, particularly in mental health, and we know both from my anecdotal experiences, but also from the broader literature that there's um, been significant evidence that shows that there are racial disparities in service. And this can include things like diagnosis, the quality of service received, um, access to medications. Um, all these things are kind of occurring. And so I was curious what the relationship between these two phenomena was going to be when looking at ACEs in the context of racial differences in internalizing and externalizing diagnosis. How do these two things come together? Do they change? Do they impact one another in any way? And so Really what I'm interested in, in what this research question was sort of about was um, really two, two primary questions. So first was to what extent 
does race predict an internalizing or externalizing diagnosis for a child when controlling for ACE score? And then the second thing was to investigate to what extent race is predicting an internalizing or externalizing diagnosis for children when specifically looking at different sort of ACE score totals. So we bracketed into sort of these proxies of uh, low ACE exposure, moderate ACE exposure, and severe ACE exposure, and looked then more, you know, uh, with a, a fine tooth comb at, are these racial disparities still occurring at different ACE scores? Um, right. So and yeah. I just wanted to let the readers know that we'll put in the show notes link to the Center for Disease Control webpage for the ACE study, which has been around now since the 90s. And it was um, a partnership between the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. And they collected data on thousands of people who were coming into California. There are two waves of it, but it's very interesting. And the CDC has tons of references and resources and graphs and things that you can find out about the connection between ACE and as Christopher said, connection between health and behavioral health outcomes that are really, really fascinating. I don't even think everything from smoking to obesity to mm-hmm. eating disorders to depression, anxiety. Um, so, and I don't know that there, there have been a lot of research and I haven't looked specifically on the CDC website for this about really understanding the nuances that you were investigating around these, how does race then influence? And you mentioned um, controlling for, you mentioned controlling for ACE scores. So Mm -hmm. could you just say a little bit about what you mean by that for our readers? So what what does that mean exactly that you controlled for the ACE score? Yeah, so um, in the study that we did, in the analysis that we conducted, we wanted to have, um, you know, sort of a clarity around what was really going on. What are the primary drivers of the phenomena that we're looking at? And so when you control for something, you're including it within the model so that whatever sort of probability that you're looking at is also accounting for any differences that would occur from the other variables that are included. So, for example, in, in our study, we used uh, survey data from the National uh, Survey of Children's Health. And I can talk a little bit more about that, but um, within our model, we looked at, we controlled for gender, the age of the child, um, their uh, socioeconomic status measured through the federal poverty level, as well as their ACE score. And so what that means is that when including all of those outside factors and seeing how they impact the likelihood of a child receiving a diagnosis, um, from there, we could have a clear picture of um, essentially how, how, large of an impact race has in predicting these outcomes. And so essentially, and why including ACE score was so important is because um, a lot of research has demonstrated that due to a lot of structural and systemic injustices that uh, children of color and particularly black youth are more likely to experience ACEs. And as we talked about already, ACEs increase the risk of numerous health and mental health outcomes. Um, and so, we wanted to account for something that says, okay, we, we know that this is increasing the risk and therefore we wanna account for that and have it not just say, well, if you're experiencing more ACEs, it's more likely that you're gonna have a diagnosis regardless. But if we can account for that and say, even when factoring in ACE score, even when accounting for 
these differences in ACEs, we can still see that there are racial disparities for the diagnoses taking place. Great, thank you. I think that was really a very important point because like you said, there's a risk that you could just say, oh, well, of course they're gonna have more externalizing or more of this or more of that because they've, ex they've been exposed because of social structures and injustices to higher rates of ACEs. But yet in reality, it's really important to remember that what you were doing is trying to say, even if we can kind of quiet that background out, that your findings are gonna give still a clearer picture of mm -hmm. the impact of racial bias mm -hmm. on these diagnoses. I do wanna say one thing also, um, ACEs, the original ACE scale had 10 items and they're often clustered into different collections like physical abuse, um, sexual abuse, neglect, emotional abuse, but they also include things like um, having a parent who's incarcerated, um, mm -hmm. having a parent with mental illness or having somebody in the home with mental illness having divorced or separated parents, and they're dichotomous, it's yes, no. So you mm -hmm. can only answer yes, no on these questions. So somebody could have spent 10 years in terror and horror and under incredibly um, challenging conditions and put yes, and somebody who had, um, and I'm not trying to put judgment on which is worse or better, but one person could have experienced um, a drunken incident with a caregiver where they were hit one time and they could both answer the question the exact same way. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's important to just note that this is something, um, and, and people have tried to expand and include, and there's um, Finkelhor has come up with the expanded ACEs um, scale, and then I'll also put in the show notes um, something called the Urban ACEs, which is mm -hmm. out of Philadelphia. And they have tried to expand to include things like community violence and gang involvement, mm -hmm. witnessing um, more violence. So there have been some attempts to, to expand and nuance the ACEs, but I think um, it is important to know that this is a dichotomous self-reported um, self scale where you just mm -hmm. say yes or no. Okay, yeah. so back to your study. So you looked at these ACEs. Yeah, so um, what we did, we like I said, we used the National Survey of Children's Health, and this is a parent report survey um, regarding uh, what's called the index child or one identified child within that home. Um, and we had just under 19,000 parent respondents um, looking specifically at children aged three to 17. Um, and for our study, we thought it was really important to specifically look at the experiences of Black youth um, and looking at the racial disparities that they're experiencing. We did this really for two reasons. One, um, prior literature has shown that Black youth tend to experience the most uh, stark disparities when it comes to these uh, ac access to services um, and to, to diagnostic disparities. And we also felt like this was an intentional choice that could also decenter whiteness as the norm uh, that's often used for comparison to other groups. Um, and so what we did in our study was we used three racial and ethnic categories, which was white, non-Hispanic, black, non-Hispanic, and Hispanic. Um, this was somewhat constrained to the um, options available within the survey that we were working from. Um, you know, every study has sort of limitations and things that it can kind of work within. Um, and so I do want to just make an acknowledgement even right now that 
there, there are certain nuances that we weren't able to get to. So something like knowing that there are Black Hispanic youth, we weren't able to look at that um, in quite the same way. Um, and additionally, there's obviously a, a wide variety of other racial and ethnic groups that we did not include, which was largely because within this survey, they were not um, large enough groups to really have reliable findings. And so we, we kept it constrained to, to these three groups um, as, as far as our, our comparison. And what we did was uh, we conducted several logistic regression models, which is a way of um, calculating the probability of an event taking place. Um, and so to, to not get too lost in the weeds, but essentially what we would do was looking at these different diagnoses, say, what is using um, Black youth as sort of the, the referent category, the comparison group, what is the likelihood, what is the probability that a white youth would have this diagnosis or a Hispanic youth would have this diagnosis. Um, and so the dependent variable or sort of what we are looking at was the parent or guardian reporting that their child had ever received a diagnosis of depression or anxiety, which were our internalizing diagnoses. Again, these things that are more um, feelings or internal experiences that are not quite as evidently visible. And then uh, compared to, to behavior or conduct disorders, which are again, these more behavioral things that you can see the, the action taking place. And the question um, is, has a doctor or healthcare provider or educator ever told you that this child has depression, anxiety, or behavior and conduct disorder? Those are kind of the, the, three, the three items. Um, and so as we talked about the models controlled for gender, age, socioeconomic status, and then ACE score as well. Um, then when it came to, uh, the, the next part of it, like I mentioned, we wanted to sort of look at these subsamples of a score. And so what we did then was we, we created our sort of categories of mild, moderate, and severe ACE exposure. And so mild ACE exposure was zero to one uh, ACEs, moderate was two ACEs, and severe was three or more ACEs. Let me just, and, sorry, Christopher, let yeah. me just interrupt you for a second. An ACE score is really people just tally up the number of yes. deaths on that original 10 item scale. So mm. that becomes your ACE score. And so yeah. if you have an ACE score of zero, it means you had no none of those particular, or at least you didn't report you had any mm. of those. And um, again, you could have up to 10 um, with using the original ACE score. So I just wanted mm. to clarify the ACE yeah. score is, is just a tally of how many yeses that you put down on that self-report right. scale. Yeah, and as you, as you mentioned earlier, it's just a cumulative score. There's no weighting of different uh, ACE types or anything like that, at least within this construct. There's been a lot of debate about how that could look or what should be done. Um, but as of right now, it's really just sort of this cumulative yes or no, did this experience happen? Um, for the National Survey of Children's Health, it's an ACE score range of zero to nine. Um, and so for ours, we, we looked at sort of what the broader literature was saying as far as, you know, kind of what, what level of ACE score kind of correlates to, to what severity. And there's, there's some debate around it. There's, there's plenty of uh, good arguments. I think, you know, reasonable people can disagree around how to make these uh, quantifications. We've seen in, in some of our literature review, we saw some studies that, um, you know, just did a, either no ACEs or one or more. We did saw some that were uh, two or more kind of viewed as severe. Um, what we saw, though, within the literature that we were looking at is um, 
that three in one of the a recent study looking at ACEs found that three or more was really where the, the largest increase of risk for, for mental health diagnosis occurred. Um, and also a separate study showed that, um, again, three or more was a really significant predictor around uh, behavior and conduct uh, disorders occurring. And so for us, it seemed like a, a logical step to use that, that model. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of the, the two separate. We had one that was controlling for ACEs, doing these different models, looking at the probability related to, to race uh, predicting a diagnosis. And then we did it using the subsample, uh, looking at low ACE exposure, moderate ACE exposure, and severe ACE exposure. And then, and then what did you end up finding? What was, what's the punchline? Yeah, so the, uh, the punchline from this is a couple of things. And, and the first one is, is sort of unsurprising and really just substantiates the broader literature, which is that um, exposure to ACEs is, is really a huge risk factor for a lot of uh, you know, youth for, for various outcomes. And in this study specifically for increased risk of depression, anxiety, or behavior and conduct disorder. Um, and this occurred in what's sort of known as like a, a graded dose response relationship. And what that means is as ACE scores go up, the risk of various things also increases. So just for like a brief example, um, compared to children with no ACEs, a child with one ACE was 2.22 times more likely to have a depression diagnosis. And a child who experienced four or more ACEs was 10.5 times more likely to have reported a depression diagnosis. So a huge leap. And again, as, as the ACE score increases, so too does the, the risk. And that was consistent um, across all three diagnoses. Um, to our study, what we found was that race was indeed a significant predictor of diagnosis. So Black youth were significantly less likely to be diagnosed with depression or anxiety, these internalizing diagnoses, and they were significantly more likely to be diagnosed with the externalizing conduct uh, or behavior disorders, even when controlling for ACE score, gender, age, and socioeconomic status. Um, it's also noteworthy that um, this disparity was true for Black youth in comparison to both white and Hispanic youth, that uh, it seems like there's a very um, specific and unique challenge occurring for Black youth um, in comparison to both white and Hispanic youth in diagnosis. We did also run uh, the models uh, using white youth as the reference category just to have a comparison between white youth and Hispanic youth to see if it, a difference was occurring there. Um, and what we found was that the only significant difference was for anxiety diagnosis, wherein white children were more likely to have that diagnosis reported, but there was no significant difference for uh, depression or for behavior and conduct disorders. Um, so then the, the second part and the kind of the final piece of this was looking at the different ACE score severities. And what we found was that um, when looking at, again, this sort of mild or low ACE exposure, moderate and severe, racial disparities for the three diagnoses were only significant uh, consistently for all three diagnoses at three or more ACEs at that severe level. Um, and it's worth noting, and, and we can certainly get into this more, you know, that this analysis is not kind of creating like a, a causal, like we know this for a fact, we can prove X, you know, causes Y. Um, however, what we took from this is that it does seem to, you know, suggest that there's a really troublesome pattern here emerging that as exposure to adversity and potentially then traumatic events, um, as that's increasing, the disparity by diagnosis appears to be increasing as well. That as 
higher ACEs are occurring, that the, the difference of what the diagnosis a child is receiving is tends to become a starker uh, disparity emerging there. So that, that to us really felt like those two findings were really significant in acknowledging that there is, um, you know, there's an issue occurring here in terms of diagnostic disparity um, for children and that particularly for children that have had adverse or traumatic experiences that that disparity is getting worse. And we can we can dig into this probably more in just a little bit, but I, I want to just make a note because I can imagine some folks saying, um, okay, that's happening, but why is that a problem? Why does that why does that matter if there are differences in diagnosis? Um, and it, the the big issue that comes from that is that the diagnosis that you have often shapes treatment. And at the most uh, sort of innocuous level, that might just mean that you're not getting the appropriate treatment for what's occurring. Um, so, you know, again, if we're thinking about this as, as ACE scores are increasing, that's upping the risk for things like potentially uh, having a, a PTSD or other trauma responses. But if it's being sort of misdiagnosed as this is just a behavioral issue, this is a child that is, you know, defiant to authority rather than being viewed as a, a trauma response or, or something, the, the service being provided might really mismatch and that can actually cause more harm and, and be really detrimental to the, the child. And that's sort of at the most innocuous level. At, at more significant levels, um, what we see is that externalizing diagnoses like behavior and conduct disorders tend to um, be punished more severely, tend to meet harsher consequences, tend to involve things like the juvenile or criminal legal systems more often, or at times even the, the child welfare system more often, and that rather than receiving sort of mental health services, um, youth can get diverted into these other channels, which can obviously also have really significant negative life outcomes. And so, um, you know, these issues of, of, of misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis, overdiagnosis, um, it's by no means, you know, this trivial issue. It can really have quite severe impacts on a, a you know the life the life course or life outcomes for for these children. Yeah, and I'm even thinking about kids in schools who get these diagnoses and then they may be um, viewed in a different way and mm -hmm. they may receive her harsher, as you said, harsher punishments like such as suspensions and expulsions. And we know from the research, all the prison, the preschool, the prison pipeline research is showing that when kids are um, having difficulties in school at this early age, it increases incredibly their likelihood that they're going to have more um, negative outcomes, including getting involved mm -hmm. in the criminal justice mm -hmm. system, but let alone not getting an education, mm -hmm. not getting the skills, not getting the support, not getting the mentorship that teachers will give for the quote unquote, you know, well-behaved kids. Mm -hmm. um, and that those outcomes can be pretty pretty scary if you think yeah. about the long-term effect of not having an education, getting involved in um, uh, the criminal justice system or juvenile justice, and also just for kids who then have such low self-esteem, who are having difficulties regulating affect. Like you said, if they're not getting that help to based on the trauma, they could be seeking um, connections and other means to regulate their um, affect in an unhealthy way, such mm -hmm. as using drugs or getting involved in other um, uh, groups that may be using, I guess, less healthy ways of coping with stress and strain. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and if they're not developing those set of coping skills, then you're just seeing that snowball getting bigger and bigger and bigger as they age. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think your point is super important that while um, they're still getting diagnosed, a misdiagnosis, as you said, at the most innocuous level, still has really negative consequences. Um, and, and, and it just goes up from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's worth noting, you know, kids are often really in tune with a lot of these things. And they're, they're aware if they've received a label as sort of the quote, bad kid, or, um, you know, ideas that teachers don't, uh, you know, have faith in them, or don't think that they're going to achieve or do well, or that they, um, you know, don't, don't anticipate them succeeding. All, all those sorts of things are, are messages that get, you know, internalized by the child. And as you were talking about, it's, it's, it's a, it's a compounding system that all of these things start to play into each other. They start to reinforce one another. Um, and yeah, it, it, it leads to really dire and serious outcomes across the lifespan that, um, you know, I think as, as social workers or as people in the helping profession, we are, you know, adamantly opposed to, you know, having those things happen. We want to build more just and equitable society, society that, you know, uplifts everyone that allows for human flourishing. And so paying attention to these things has, you know, implications for all those sort of broader elements. Absolutely. And, and I know your study um, could not have identified which um, professional gave these diagnoses. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could have been, it could have been a general physician. It could have been a social worker. It could have been a psychologist. It could have been a psychiatrist. I mean, it's, um, who, I know you don't have the ability to, mm -hmm. to know where they receive that diagnosis, but what do you think is sort of unique about social work that would, that our listeners our readers should really be thinking about of, of where we can be a leader in this mm -hmm. area because social workers diagnose and it's, it's a very, very powerful position to be in, to give somebody such a label. So what do you think is unique about social work um, that would set us apart or, or allow us to take a leadership role in trying to address this? Yeah. Incredible bias I, that's going on. Yeah, I, I think, um, so first I'll just start by acknowledging um, that it, it's a widespread issue and it's occurring really uh, pretty unilaterally across the board for all these different helping professions. And so, you know, in our in our background review, we found, you know, different elements of this occurring in, in multiple different settings, right? And that, you know, different studies have shown this is occurring within educational spaces um, an implicit bias that's occurring there, that it's occurring within juvenile legal systems as well as mental health systems, um, doctor's offices. And so it's, it's, a wide, it's a widespread and ubiquitous problem. But I do think, um, well, first I wanna note, you know, social work has been complicit that we have contributed and I, I wanna take ownership and acknowledge that that is an issue. However, I do think social work is really well poised to be, you know, a leader in making changes into I, I really think that social work should take on that mantle as trying to be a profession that starts to, um, you know, disrupt and change and break these system as it exists currently. And I think there's a couple ways in which we're we're really well poised. And so the first um, is just our our perspective of a person and environment. I think is really well suited to adapting and, and acknowledging these issues. Right? We understand the contextual factors that are going on within people's lives. 
Um, and that allows for things like seeing how macro, micro, meso are all interacting, acknowledgements of how issues of systemic racism can be impacting both a provider and the person that's coming in for services, that it's a, a dynamic and reciprocal interaction. And so even just that baseline standpoint of how we, we view issues in this more holistic way, I think is, is a necessary first step. I also think that social work is, you know, it's a profession that has so many values centered on social justice, on equity, on human rights, on, on ensuring that people are, you know, provided the, the services and the resources and the things that they need to thrive. And I, I do think that is something that can be really, you know, unique to, to other professions, even ones that are doing lots of good work. I think our social justice orientation sort of sets us apart and we have a clear professional mandate to want to disrupt and break up these systems that are, um, you know, disrupting the the, the lifespan or, or causing active harm to people. And so I, I think that that's an element where we can really should be leaders in implementing things connected to anti-oppressive practice um, or to um, disrupting sort of an anti-oppressive practice, meaning in, in, in the simplest terms, really, again, disrupting power hierarchies, mm -hmm. uh, ensuring that clients are operating as um, you know, the experts of their own experiences, of the experts of what they need. Um, and that social work, I think, as a, as a profession, really centers and values those ideals, you know, human, uh, you know, rights to self-determination, all those sorts of things are, are built in to the DNA of our profession. And so I think it's, you know, imperative that social workers take these things that are almost to a certain extent, I think, not quite taking for granted, but it just, it's so, um, you know, embedded within our profession that I think we sometimes assume everyone's operating that way. And I, I think it's fair to say that that's not always actually the case and that we can bring that to the table and really ensure that that's being discussed in wherever these decisions are, are taking place, whether that's a doctor's office, a school, um, within a mental health agency, all those spaces, I think we have, you know, a role to play there. I totally agree. And I, I think you said it incredibly well. And I, I hope that what people will take, one of the things that I hope people will take away from this conversation is one, I really need to check my own biases. Mm -hmm. I really need to look at my own um, perceptions and what am I doing and how am I operating? But social workers are on interdisciplinary teams. Social workers are supervisors, supervisors, social workers are leaders of organizations, program directors. And I think being able to bring this conversation into those meetings, into staff conversations, into team meetings where people are talking about clients and really raising the question, are we looking at this with, with a bias-free or using a social justice critical theory lens mm -hmm. to think about this particular case and how, mm -hmm. is, how are we operating and are we really checking ourselves in our own levels of bias mm -hmm. um, as we're thinking about who this person is, how they came to be, what are their needs, and what what are we seeing right now, again, in the person and environmental context, context and thinking about the various systems that are having a role in influencing that person's presentation and making sure that that presentation is viewed through that critical lens. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, I think it starts with checking ourselves and then pulling that out into conversations with other disciplines 
mm-hmm. other social workers, other program directors, administrators, et cetera. Yeah. And just even as you're talking about sort of that critical nature of, of self-reflection, it's sort of bringing up for me something that was uh, also sort of like a, a, a key recommendation or something that was brought up for us as, you know, something that we view as really essential, which is, um, you know, implementing things like cultural humility and and practicing from this standpoint that really is centering the other, that that is focused on the, the, the client, the person that you're collaborating with. And so um, kind of to that point of self-reflection, cultural humility really sort of focuses on sort of like three primary guiding factors with the first one being a lifelong commitment to self-evaluation and self-critique. And so knowing that just continually, no matter how much experience you have, no matter how knowledgeable you are within a field or within a community, within you know whatever expertise you have, that you should always be looking to continually examine your practices, your tendencies, whatever implicit biases are occurring for you. Um, and that a lot of this re- revolves around learning from others, being open to new knowledge, um, understanding your own epistemic viewpoint, trying to identify where power imbalances or privilege is occurring, and just really staying attuned to that. And a lot of that really comes directly from that client themselves, right? Hearing what they're telling you, being attuned and open to new information and not assuming that you have everything all figured out. And then from there, that kind of moves into this idea of fixing the power imbalances, reframing the hierarchy, moving from, you know, I, the social worker and the expert that has all the information, I diagnose you, I provide the treatment plan for you, right? And shifting it into this collaboration, this this process of working with the consumer as the expert. And then the last piece of it is institutional accountability. So moving from just your individual relationships that you're holding, but saying, how do I ensure that the educational and professional bodies that I'm a part of are addressing systemic racism? How am I ensuring that wherever I work has policies and practices that are, um, you know, receptive and supportive and, um, you know, enabling anyone to, to, to thrive and survive within those spaces and not, um, you know, kind of excluding, you know, people, those sorts of things. And so being vocal about injustices where you see them both for yourself internally, but also within whatever external organizations you find yourself. Um, and I, I think that was really for us, one of the, the key factors that we saw as, as an important next step for both researchers and clinicians alike um, really just trying to operate less in a stance of, I know everything, I've got it figured out, and more in a, what, what do I need to learn in this new situation? What can this person tell me um, and inform me about their lived experience that I need to be paying attention to? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It, it makes me think about all the different, if you, I'm picturing in my head a flow chart of all the different ways that our biases can can influence everything from the initial encounter with a client to eventually providing some sort of service, whether it's referral or service. And, and, and not only do we have our own personal biases, but we're working with a document. These diagnoses are based on the American Psychiatric mm-hmm. Association's view of what is mentally ill and what is mentally well. Mm-hmm. And you're really either in the box or you're out of the box. And that it's, I, I we're, you know, I could get on a soapbox about <laughs> the diagnosis and, and how yeah. it's tied to insurance and mm-hmm. V codes in the DSM and all sorts of other 
issues that are going on with the diagnostic and statistical manual. And certainly people will, and I think they're right, say that it has moved forward on being more culturally sensitive and recognizing Mm -hmm. gender and cultural differences. But I think people would also agree it's got a long way to go. Yeah. And that it is still in and of itself a very biased instrument. Um, And there's a psychiatrist named Arthur Kleinman who's written a lot on mental illness and international and and how some diagnoses, um, specifically he's looked at schizophrenia and psychotic disorders, what are the commonalities across different cultures? And one quote I heard him say one time, which I just love and I repeat it constantly, it's called, we're always making an interpretation of an interpretation Mm. because we're also only seeing what clients want us to see. Mm-hmm. They're interpreting what is safe to report. They're interpreting what they're comfortable reporting, which could be very limited based on their own experiences within their families or the mental health system or the juvenile justice system. And then we then make an interpretation of that interpretation. Mm-hmm. And so how close are we to the quote unquote true picture of somebody? And then we're using, we're overlaying that not only with our own personal biases, but then the biases of this instrument that of the, the DSM. Um, so there's so many ways that we could be influenced um, with our, again, with biases and, and, um, and not attending to those factors or those, um, I'm having a hard time thinking of the word, but the, the descriptors that you use around cultural humility, mm-hmm. there's so many mm-hmm. ways that that can go awry yeah. um, given our current system. And also the pressure that clinicians feel to diagnose quickly because mm-hmm. you have to get a diagnosis in order to get the billing. And many agencies, they want that diagnosis either by the first or the second session. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes people feel like, oh, if I diagnose, that means they have more access to services. So I'm doing good by giving them a harsher diagnosis because that means they're going to get better care. But as you said, there can be so many things that go wrong and awry with that. Mm-hmm. So we, um, we only have a couple more minutes, but I guess I would like to ask you if you have any recommendations or final take-home messages that you would want our listeners to take away from this study and what, what should be action steps or what should be the, the things that people are thinking about? What would be your wish list for our listeners and our profession? Yeah. So <laughs> lots of things and I'll try to, you know, keep it as, as narrowed and focused as possible, but I think um, I think the, the key takeaway is, you know, recognizing that this this study is not a conclusive, again, you know, to, to be clear, there, there's sort of these limitations around what we know, but it's pointing to a really serious issue that is supported within the broader literature around how service disparities are occurring, um, particularly for Black youth. And so I think our recommendations um, really is just sort of this, this call to action, this need for urgent changes to be taking place across this whole host. And as we talked about, there's so many different elements of how this all interplays within, um, you know, when we're thinking about children, we're thinking about in their, their, you know, the doctor's office, but also in their school and at home and in their communities and how all these things are interconnected. 
But, you know, really thinking of our audience being, you know, with, with clinical social workers, I think first and foremost, as I was talking about, was really just acknowledging and uh, in, in doing internal work to really be aware of what am I bringing to the table? What are my implicit biases, belief systems, value systems, all these things, and, and having that internal reflection to, to make sure that you're meeting the present moment um, as intentionally as possible. And so um, I think it's worth noting that there's there are good systems in place for this, that it's not, you know, asking anyone to sort of like reinvent the wheel, but to, to lean into existing things that we know, like cultural humility or um, elements of anti-oppressive practice, um, using elements of things like critical theories, feminist theories, to really try to root out where oppression and injustice and racism, sexism, homophobia, all these things that are manifesting within our society. How do we kind of bring these uh, practical models, these theoretical standpoints into, into being to really work to, to undo these things? Um, there's also elements where, you know, obviously for those uh, listeners that are, are coming at it from like a research standpoint, there's so much to be done still. Um, particularly, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, ACEs. ACEs have been really heavily studied and yet somehow there's so much left to be doing with them. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, like the Philadelphia ACE study is a great alternative, uh, something that's really started to expand and create a much more uh, expansive view of, of how ACEs are conceptualized. That first ACE study was um, incredible, but it was also really constrained in the sense that it was largely with uh, white middle-class families. And so it's taken decades of work to start to expand and think about ACEs differently. Um, there's a really, really interesting um, new ACE model that was put out by uh, Bernard that's called the culturally informed ACE model. And that uh, looks to intentionally integrate issues of um, sort of like historical context and, and racism, how those things interact with ACE scores. And so, um, you know, like finding these things that, that exist and, and, and implementing them, using more research connected to them um, to really try to think about these things holistically. Because I think something that I've seen within the, the ACE literature is that as we talked about, you know, structural issues, systemic issues of racism are impacting how ACEs are being experienced. And we're playing a little bit of catch up right now Then, how do we actually get uh, ACE scores to actively, you know, reflect the, the cultural uh, context that different people are experiencing. And so I think those are a few of the different things that, um, that come to mind, both sort of on that, that clinical standpoint, but also from a, from a research standpoint, I think we need to be really intentional of how we're conceptualizing questions, um, how, like what kind of tools are we using? Because again, all these things are not sort of a value free or, or context free. They're all coming from a specific place. And so I think being really mindful of how we are asking these questions, what ACEs we are including or not including has a lot of, um, you know, important relevance in, in the work to be done. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really broad issue. There's so much more that, that can be said that could be said um, connected to, to ACEs, to, to racial disparities in services. Um, but I think those are kind of the, the initial call to action is, is really just this growing awareness and intentionality around the work um, from a practical sense. And then also I, the, the last bit I would say is, you know, for, for educators also being really mindful of how they're, they're training and preparing social workers. And, and even as a profession, um, making sure that we're continually uh, 
building access, uh, equitable access to education, right? Who is able to become a social worker, who's able to become a licensed social worker, that these sorts of things are, are critical elements of how we move forward as a profession. Great, super well said. Yes, yes, I agree. And, and um, I think we can put in the show notes some links for critical race theory and cultural humanity resources mm-hmm. so people can have some guidelines and if they want to look at how to integrate these perspectives into their own practices. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, we can put some links up for the original ACE study, but also the Philadelphia ACE study and the Bernard um, resource that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. so that people, again, have a different set of tools to explore that might be, uh, might be more culturally relevant, mm-hmm. given, given the, the clients that they're working with. But I think we also just need to be asking ourselves and our agencies and our coworkers and our profession to keep the conversations going around these issues, because as you said, it's sort of infused on so many different layers. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you also for your work. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing in raising this issue. And hopefully with this podcast, more and more people will have access to it and know about it and be able to then start those conversations both internally, but also with their colleagues and in the field. So thank you so much. And thank you very much.